Food is the language everyone speaks, but do we truly understand it? Between the conversations over organic food and GMOs, different diets taking the world by storm, and how what we eat actually impacts our environment, there's no shortage of things to learn about. Hi, I'm Karel Vega. And I'm Cheryl Kirschenbaum, and this is Serving Up Science. Today we're talking about one of the most famous food libel cases of all time. In the world of lawsuits, you sometimes hear the words libel and slander tossed around, but what do they actually mean? Generally speaking, if somebody defames you by spoken word, it would fall within the category of slander. That's Mark Dotson, a professor at Western Michigan University Cooley Law School who has specialized in product liability and health care. If somebody defames you by written word, it would fall within the category of libel. But in the 90s, some states introduced laws that made it easier to sue for libel if it involved a food product. One big reason for this? Dimetazide, which has been sprayed on apples for more than 20 years, breaks down into another chemical called UDMH. In a 1989 episode of 60 Minutes, CBS News reported that dimetazide, a chemical used to preserve apples, was carcinogenic. The EPA's acting administrator, Dr. Jack Moore, acknowledged that the EPA has known about the cancer risk for 16 years. People panicked. Apples took a big hit in popularity. The fallout of that report was immense. The American Council on Science and Health reports that apple orchard owners estimated the losses from that 60 Minutes episode in the hundreds of millions, even though only an estimated 15% of U.S. apple trees actually used dimenazide at the time. In response, apple orchard owners in Washington state filed suit against CBS for trade libel to recoup their losses. But the growers were unable to disprove the 60 Minutes report that dimenazide caused cancer, so the case was dismissed. That's because trade libel puts the burden of proof on the plaintiff rather than the defendant. Meaning, if you accuse someone of libel, you better have good proof to back that claim up. However, this case was a catalyst in the creation of food libel laws. Following pressure from lobbyists, several states, including Texas, introduced laws like these. Now, food manufacturers could feel confident filing a lawsuit against someone who made a disparaging claim. These laws had different standards depending on where you were. Remember we mentioned Texas? That part's important. Let's fast forward to 1996. Do we really get what we pay for? Take our test. You probably know that voice. Harpo Studios, Chicago. Oprah Winfrey is arguably the best-known talk show host of the 90s, and her opinions weighed heavily with her fan base. If she recommended a book to her audience, it would become a bestseller. But the Oprah seal of approval also works the other way around. On April 16, 1996, the topic of her show was dangerous foods. One of her guests was rancher-turned-animal rights activist Howard Lyman. If we are going to survive as a homo sapien species, we need to understand the fact that 80% of all of the grain that are produced in the United States of America today is stuffed down the throat of an animal. It takes That's him delivering one of the many speeches he's given over decades criticizing the meat industry. Lyman was on the show to warn viewers of bovine spongiform encephalopathy, also known as mad cow disease. Mad cow was first documented in the mid-80s in the United Kingdom. The fatal brain disease was spread through the practice of recycling cow and sheep carcasses into food for other cattle, known as rendering. According to the Centers for Disease Control, by the early 90s, mad cow had reached its peak in the UK with nearly 1,000 cases reported weekly. This clip from a video by Ireland's Department of Agriculture, Food, and the Marine describes the sensory disturbances experienced by an infected cow. 
After being trotted, this cow, which is in poor condition, stopped and appeared to become oblivious to her surroundings. She exhibited a combination of sensory disturbances, including nose licking, teeth grinding, head tossing, abnormal ear movement, licking her feet. The disease is also contagious to humans who eat the tainted cow meat, where it can develop into variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. A neurodegenerative disorder that the CDC says can leave people with a life expectancy of a little over a year when symptoms develop. Lyman argued that mad cow would soon become an epidemic in the United States as well, going as far as stating that the human variant of the disease could become as infectious as AIDS. Oprah responded by saying Lyman's claim had, quote, just stopped me cold from eating another burger. We'd play the clip, but in the time since its airing, Oprah Studios have done an effective job at keeping the episode unavailable to the public. Time magazine reported that following Oprah's Mad Cow Disease segment, beef prices plunged for nearly two weeks, eventually reaching a 10-year low. Members of the beef industry were pretty upset. A group of ranchers known as the Texas Cattlemen sued Oprah for more than $10 million, alleging that she damaged their industry. The basis for their lawsuit was a 1995 Texas law that said people could be held liable if they made false statements about perishable food. In 1998, the case moved to a trial by jury in Amarillo, Texas, which posed a bit of a problem for Oprah because her show was taped in Chicago. So what does Oprah do? Postpone the show? No way. She's got a contract to fulfill people. We're on the road again. Get ready for Oprah, Texas style. Oprah's team moves production of the show to Amarillo for the duration of the trial. As Oprah recalls, the trial was one of the most difficult moments in her career. Your trial by day and show by night. That was really one of the most stressful times I'd ever personally experienced. Five weeks later, a decision. The jury finds that Oprah was exercising her right to free speech and did not knowingly make any false statements. Oprah Winfrey is vindicated. She faces the media on the courthouse steps and declares. I, what my reaction is that uh, free speech not only lives, it rocks. But what lessons can we learn from this and other food libel cases? Again, Cooley Law School professor Mark Dotson, who refers to food libel laws by another name, veggie laws. The veggie laws, there has been, I'm unaware of anybody that, is, has, that has prevailed in any of the states that have veggie laws. The concern with those states that do have veggie laws is that it lowers the burden of proof, doesn't require malice. Dotson explains that a successful libel suit could bring First Amendment concerns because it's very hard to prove concretely if someone defamed a product on purpose. Though there is one important case to note. In 2012, ABC was sued by Beef Products Inc. for ABC News' reporting on pink slime. A whistleblower has come forward to tell consumers about the ground beef a lot of us buy at the supermarket. Is it what we think it is, or is it padded with a filler the whistleblower calls pink slime? That lawsuit was eventually settled five years later, with ABC paying the beef producer millions of dollars. So we'll never know how that case would have played out had it made it to court. These are the three biggest food libel cases, which all ended differently. And because they all ended differently, it's hard to know what's food libel and what isn't without a precedent. You've been listening to Serving Up Science, the podcast all about food, its origins, and effect on the planet. This series is produced in association with Food at MSU. To hear more Serving Up Science, download the series wherever you get your podcast. I'm Cheryl Kirschenbaum. And I'm Karel Vega. And this is WKAR. WKAR.